everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today I'm joined by two guests, Dr. Nazem Akum and Dr. Patrick Boyle, both from the University of Washington. And they have published a review article which is entitled Translational Applications of Computational Modeling for Patients with Cardiac Arrhythmias. We have a great discussion all about the potential for modeling of the heart and where it applies in electrophysiology and beyond. We talk about atrial fibrillation, ventricular arrhythmias, CRT, arrhythmia prediction, and even stroke. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, but perhaps I'll have you start off by introducing yourself for the heart audience, if that's okay. Patrick, do you want to go first? Who, who are you and where do you work and what do you do? Sure. I'm Patrick Boyle. I'm an assistant professor of bioengineering here at the University of Washington uh, in Seattle. Um, and my lab is concerned with using computational modeling and simulation to better understand uh, human hearts, especially in the context of electrophysiological abnormalities. And how about you, Nazem? Uh, who are you and where do you work and what do you do? My name is Nazem Akom. I am a, a cardiac electrophysiologist uh, associate Professor of Medicine in the Cardiology Department, the University of Washington School of Medicine. Uh, my area of specialty is cardiac electrophysiology. Um, I take care of patients with various kinds of electrical rhythm abnormalities. And that means I have to take care of patients with uh, fast heartbeats, slow heartbeats, skipping heartbeats, um, and uh, figure out what's the best way to restore the normal rhythm. Perfect. And I know that uh, the editor of Heart, Professor Catherine Otto, uh, requested that you guys write uh, a review, an education in heart piece, which has now been published. And it's called Translational Applications of Computational Modeling for Patients with Cardiac Arrhythmias. And we're going to just touch on some elements of this review because it's very comprehensive. But perhaps we can start off by you guys discussing what's the background to computational modeling? Why is it required? Um, and how common are arrhythmias where this kind of modeling might be able to help? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, the computational models, and specifically we tend to use finite element analysis um, for most of our research. You know, they're a mainstay of the engineer's toolbox in, you know, in designing everything from buildings to aircraft um, you know, the, the whole world around us that has been, that has benefited from, you know, uh, centuries worth of, you know, developing the engineering method, uh, benefit daily from the use of computational models. And in the past 20, 30, 40 years, increasingly, we've recognized that those can be useful in the context of biological systems and biomedical systems. Um, so computational genomics have grown explosively. Um, computational epidemiology is a big part of how we, you know, for example, you know, currently right now are trying to grapple with um, the pandemic. And computational physiology, which is kind of where we slot in, is the idea of building biophysically realistic models, mathematical models of ion channel uh, processes and of the spread of electrophysiological activity in, uh, in conductive tissue 
Uh, and we can use those models to decipher some of these extraordinarily complex phenomena um, that are intrinsically linked to the pathophysiology of patients with arrhythmia. In terms of the clinical uh, implications, I would, you know, <laughs> I'm a little, I'm very close to the sun because it's what I do every single day. So I, I think Nazem would be in a good position to give perspective on what it means to clinicians. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think the field of, of clinical electrophysiology actually lends itself very well to modeling. Um, the nature of the problems that we deal with, um, the type of tools that we use and the data that we collect, and that's electrical data and structural data. and the approach to solving these very delicate problems um, where we don't have a lot of time, for example, to spend in somebody's heart to figure out a problem. We have a finite amount of time and preparation is very much a key part of this. Um, so having the ability to prepare ourselves um, using modeling to understand the problem, to be prepared to to the various scenarios that we might encounter and how to deal with them um, is incredibly important. Um, and uh, this applies itself to not just one treatment of cardiac arrhythmia problems. Uh, for example, we can apply these tools to figure out whether or not certain medications can work, whether or not certain procedural approaches can work, uh, what's the best way of delivering that treatment. Where's the area of interest? What is what should be our target to maximize the, the patient's outcome? Perfect. And we'll certainly come on to talk about some of those applications shortly. But perhaps um, I'm, a, I'm a cardiologist, but a general cardiologist. Um, so I think probably I'm representative of the audience. Perhaps you guys could maybe, Patrick, tell us what exactly you mean by computational modeling. What does it it sounds a, a it sounds super hard, super complicated, but what is it at its heart? What are we dealing with here? So I think the best way to understand it is to you know when when I'm teaching this to undergraduate students, uh, we go all the way back to first principles, and you know we talk the seminal experiments that that eventually you know blossomed into this now um, quite robust and thriving field were done by Hodgkin and Huxley uh, in the middle of the 20th century, recording action potentials and ionic currents from uh, axons, from, from squids. And so the, the fundamental work to characterize it, to develop a mathematical equation that reproduced, that approximated the electrical kinetics um, that they observed in these, across these membranated cells. Those same equations that were formulated, you know, decades ago are still used every single day in the formulations that we use to represent the behavior of sodium channels in cardiomyocytes. And so our work now involves taking models that look like that. So ordinary differential equation models representing ion channel kinetics, assembling those in sort of the totality to represent, okay, well, here are the biophysics of a patch of cardiomyocyte membrane. So what we'll do is plug those into a tissue scale model, uh, which approximates the myocardium as a, as a, as a, 
a, a conductive syncytium, a sort of a, a volume conductor. And then we can use that entire configuration um, in the context of um, image-based models. So organ scale models that are derived from MRI scans or CT scans um, or, or any other kind of um, clinical imaging modality that, that allows us to reproduce the, the, the shape and the uh, characteristics of different parts of an individual heart. We can sort of nest those cell scale models within tissue scale models within the organ scale and simulate the propagation of uh, an electrical wavefront in, res in, um, in response to a perturbation. So a stimulus or a spontaneous depolarization from a simulated sinoatrial node, uh, that type of thing. Yeah, and I guess what I would emphasize there is that it, it really takes a lot of different inputs from multiple different and, and disparate um, spatial scales. And one of the really key components that we touch on in our review is that, you know, an essential prerequisite to being able to do this type of translationally um, useful work is to have access to robust and um, high quality um, clinical imaging data for patients with arrhythmia which is something that is really one of the um, one of the advantages of our center at the University of Washington. I think Nazem can probably comment on that since it's really, you know, kind of the lifeblood of, or, or one of the, you know, certainly one of the marquee features of our electrophysiology um, program here. And Nazem, what kind of patients are you using this technology for? Is it everybody that's going forward for, let's say, an atrial fibrillation ablation? Is it selected patients? Uh, is it patients going for other types of ablation? Where would you say the, that the, the highest, the greatest impact is of this kind of work? Uh, right now, the, the area that we've focused on in applying these, uh, this technology and these models is atrial arrhythmias. Okay. Um, this is something that I've been involved in for about 12 years now. Um, which is using and leveraging the power of advanced cardiac imaging with MRI, where we can get uh, more details of the tissue characteristics of um, the myocardium. And uh, what we have shown is that in of itself, the disease within the tissue, the fibrosis that we're able to measure with MRI is uh, a very important factor in um, determining who are our patients who are likely to respond to various therapies like catheter ablation. Um, and this is without really um, using that information any other way, just knowledge of what's the substrate um, is super important. But we have um, expanded this in, in various directions, especially with uh, the collaborative work that I've been doing with Patrick and his lab, um, is that we really want to understand what are what are the driving factors for this change within the tissue, uh, what modulates it, how does it interact, how does it exert its electrophysiological properties, um, and then how does it impact the, the, not just the arrhythmia outcomes, but also the major cardiovascular outcomes that we all care for um, in, in cardiology, like um, how does that impact the risk of stroke, for example, or the development of heart failure? Um, so we're 
one of the very few centers in the world that have this uh, ability to do that. And it's thanks to the teams and collaborative work that uh, starts with uh, the clinical questions, but has partnerships and, and collaborations that leverages the expertise that Patrick has and other collaborators have across campus uh, to help us answer these, these questions and, uh, and use this you know, top-notch research to, to be able to, to help our patients ultimately. Uh, you've talked about using um, high-grade MR, cardiac MR imaging to, to derive maps, for example, of fibrosis in the atria and the ventricles. Are you also using personalized um, electrical mapping? Because at one stage, Nazem, you talked about uh, having the, you know, reducing the amount of time you're inside the heart, having a kind of almost a model of the patient's likely substrate before you go in there. How do you add on the patient's personalized electrical issues, if you like, to that uh, MR scan beforehand? Or is it all derived during the procedure from um, uh, intracardiac electrocardiograms, that kind of thing? Um, great question. Um, there are various approaches to this, to this problem. Um, currently the one that, uh, we're using together with Patrick is to, uh, take the three-dimensional modeling that we do based on the raw MRI images, um, superimpose on top of that, um, fibrotic changes that we are also deriving from MRI images. Also take into account the uh, muscle architecture within the atrium. And uh, also take into account what we have learned as far as the electrical remodeling that happens within the tissue um, in the setting of, of atrial fibrillation and the setting of this intermix of fibrotic and healthy tissue. And uh, taking all of this, we build our model and we basically try to, in silico, right? before we do anything in, in, a, in a live patient, try to um, understand where are the areas of interest, so to speak, uh, that may be playing a key part in maintaining that patient's um, atrial fibrillation or making them vulnerable to sustain um, this rhythm for a long period of time. So this is uh, something that Patrick has worked on on the modeling side for and helped basically define it and develop it. Um, and now we can... Uh, bring it to, to the clinic and prepare ourselves for the procedure. Um, when we are in the procedure, that's when we start recording real-time electrical data. And this is basically where our model is put to the test. Okay. This is how we verify that what we have studied um, in silico actually matches with what we're seeing in a live human being. So that helps us give feedback and improve our modeling and make it more and more accurate. Um, so we're constantly learning and um, we, are, we are at the forefront, but we, were, we are actually just barely scratching the surface of this, uh, the power of this technology. And in the review, you mentioned several applications, some of which are research applications and some I guess are already, you're already using as you've discussed, things like revealing uh, drug targets potentially for, for new antiarrhythmic drugs and new ablation strategies, I guess, uh, based on this work. Uh, and also in the ventricle as well, uh, potentially using this technology in CRT and also arrhythmia risk stratification. Do you want to, to pick one of those and, and, and tell us a little bit more in detail about 
one of those that's perhaps the most exciting uh, area that you're working on at the moment? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's an ongoing project. So, you know, prior to coming here um, to Seattle, uh, I was at Johns Hopkins University uh, in Baltimore and my, you know, longtime mentor and key collaborator there was Natalia Trianova. Uh, and the two of us worked together on, you know, deploying the, you know, a uh, sort of start to finish a comprehensive framework for using um, predictions from computational models to custom tailor um, catheter ablation uh, in persistent atrial fibrillation patients. And so the way this study looked um, looks on the published page. So the, you know the study came out in 2019 in Nature Biomedical Engineering. Um, and we called it the Optima framework, optimal target identification by a modeling of arrhythmogenesis, because uh, we needed to have a flashy acronym. <laughs> it always helps. Um, <laughs> but the the idea of this study was to uh, you know get patients who who were presenting, and this was done in a you know in a sequential way. It was not done in a randomized way because at this point it was you know truly a, a pilot application of this technology. Um, and so, you know, to put things in perspective for your listeners, we would get the MRI scans and then we needed to make sure like these computational simulations are pretty heavyweight. Um, it's not something that, you know, where you snap your fingers and the simulations are done. So the model reconstruction process, um, you know, depending on what kind of hangups uh, we encounter in terms of the, you know, the, the idiosyncrasies of individual geometries, defects with the images that need to be uh, resolved, you know, it can take up to a day of, of pretty solid work to, you know, to produce a, a, a good computational model that's ready to go. And then the simulations themselves uh, require hundreds of hours, um, but parallelized uh, onto a supercomputing cores so that in effect, it only takes, you know, three or four hours, but in, in terms of the actual wall time of all the computers running in parallel, it's you know hundreds or if not thousands of hours per patient. And then all of those findings from the simulations in terms of the specific locations of putative arrhythmia drivers need to be mapped onto a different uh, geometry that's compatible with the clinical systems used during catheter ablations. And so in terms of a sort of boots on the ground experience for me as the, you know, as the, as the, as the sort of driver of this project, the main person doing the work, it was a lot of time spent troubleshooting the clinical system, figuring out how to, you know, sort of bootstrap our files onto the clinical system that was not really designed to be used in exactly this way. And then, you know, sitting in the EP lab, wearing a headset and helping the, the, the attendings who were doing the ablations navigate to the targets in real time that were predicted by, um, predicted by the computational simulations. So it's a really like to us, you know, and I say this with, everybody says this about every paper that they've ever done, but really, honestly, this was the most exhilarating experience of my scientific career. You know, when I started doing this type of research almost 20 years ago, if you had told me that in 2016, 2017, I'd be in the EP lab at Hopkins, you know, walking them through and telling them where to ablate based on what we saw in the simulations, 
I'm not sure I would have believed you. <laughs> um, and so it's, it was really, it was really an overwhelming experience, honestly, um, as an engineer being able, being put in that position. Um, it's really, it's really amazing. Um, and so that's ongoing. Uh, that, that project uh, spawned a, uh, a randomized clinical trial, which is underway. And I'm still involved with that um, as a co-investigator. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, myriad potential applications as well in the, in the ventricular realm, like you said, in computational pharmacology. And there's also stuff that we're working on here uh, at UW that pertains to, you know, multi-physics simulations of the, uh, of the left atrium that we're hoping to get off the ground. Um, and maybe Nazem can, can elucidate uh, those, uh, especially as we, as we begin to understand um, atrial fibrosis that can serve as uh, a pathophysiological nexus, not only for atrial fibrillation, but also for, um, for stroke uh, and other conditions that patients suffer from. Yeah, I, I would just say that you can easily tell why it's, it was a coup on our part to recruit Patrick uh, away from <laughs> I can, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so lots of very exciting projects that are going on, um, leveraging our expertise and our, our technology and our team's expertise here. Um, so other than managing arrhythmias, for example, uh, we are very much interested in understanding how do patients with atrial fibrillation in particular develop a thrombus or a propensity to have a thrombus and, and have a stroke. We're very much intrigued by a particular population of patients with stroke that uh, don't have atrial fibrillation. And these are the embolic strokes of undetermined source uh, where we have shown that they also uh, have a disease pattern within their atria that's very similar to patients with atrial fibrillation, but they don't have the, the arrhythmic component. Um, and um, we also have tried to see, well, is there something different about this, this fibrosis in this cohort that makes them not show atrial fibrillation? And, and Patrick has actually also uh, taken uh, these patients to the cardiac uh, system simulation lab, his lab, and um, studied their substrate to see, well, what's different about it if they have the same fibrosis? Um, did they have something particular that, uh, is there a reason why they don't show AFib? And, and um, they seem to be as inducible or vulnerable to develop AFib as are um, atrial fib patients. Um, there are certain small intricacies that we're still looking into trying to understand better why they haven't manifested the arrhythmia. Um, but um, taking a step back and, and kind of looking at the, at the big picture of stroke and atrial fibrillation, we still don't do a really good job in predicting who's going to have stroke and atrial fibrillation, let alone those ESIS patients. So our, our clinical tools, the CHADS-VASC score that is the most commonly used currently, is not a very good tool. It's, it's easy to use, but um, its predictive accuracy is average at best. And uh, we have shown that adding a patient's fibrosis burden into that uh, risk prediction model actually makes it better. So there's something about the substrate that uh, contributes to the thrombogenesis. Um, so we are, 
we were trying to um, also advance uh, the field in this direction and this in this particular area as well. And uh, we are studying using our our modeling, and this is the multiphysics component that that Patrick was um, alluding to earlier. Is um, we have the uh, ability to to study the contribution of structure and function and model blood flow and electromechanical behavior of the atrium using the the data that we that we are collecting here and leveraging those uh, the modeling power that we have so we take the anatomy we take the fibrosis we take fluid dynamics and uh, we try to marry all those three together to really understand which patients particular uh, phenotype or pattern of fibrosis or shape of atria or atrial appendage lends itself to this increase in the uh, stroke risk. And we believe that um, this is ultimately going to be better for patients if we can identify patients who are very unlikely to have um, a thrombus, then maybe those patients don't need to be exposed to the increased bleeding risk that comes with blood thinners. And vice versa, if we can identify patients who are high risk based on not just their, uh, their clinical factors, but also their, their anatomy, their physiology, then that, that might be a much better tool in selecting who's uh, really in need of, of being on a blood thinner or other therapies like appendage occlusion and things like that. Yeah, it's just fascinating, isn't it? I could listen to both of you talk about it for a long time. But um, where should people go to find out more about the work that you guys do? Obviously, the, the review is is comprehensive. And you've also published something, another review in Heart recently, which I think is focused more on atrial fibrillation and, and fibrosis and the, the risk of stroke that you've just been talking about. But where can people, which websites potentially should people go and check out if they want more details, maybe to come and work with you guys or uh, just to find out more? <laughs> Thanks for mentioning the, the, the other review. That was Heart doesn't have a, a, a submission type called a white paper, but that's how we talked about it internally. We wanted this to be not just a normal review, but kind of a forward-looking prospectus uh, to, you know, outline, you know, plant our flag in the ground. Uh, you know, our co-author on that review was um, Professor Juan Carlos del Alamo, who recently was recruited here from UCSD uh, and is a professor of mechanical engineering working on hemodynamic simulations. So I think we would point people towards that review, which outlines our, you know, our view of the field looking forward and trying to envision what it might look like in five to 10 years. Um, my website uh, you know, describes the research that we do here. Uh, we call it the CARDS Lab, which is C-A-R-D-S-S, um, Cardiac uh, System Simulations. And so that's C-A-R-D-S-S-Lab.org. Uh, and of course, you know, as a true researcher, I would just say, if you want to learn more about this PubMed yeah, uh, and Google Scholar, baby, that's the best possible place to look for, <laughs> for more new papers and, and exciting research in this area. Fantastic. Yeah, and, and for us, uh, Division of Cardiology on the clinical side, the academic website uh, has the... Uh, academic bio and profile. It also has links for our training program, which um, is also a big part of this effort. We uh, definitely want uh, to recruit the best and the brightest to join our team. And the links are there to find out about our work, our work and how to join the team. 
Brilliant. Well, I want to uh, just finish off by thanking both of you for your generous time today, explaining this to me as a simple cardiologist who doesn't deal with arrhythmias. Uh, and I think the heart audience will really enjoy both the podcast and also reading both of those reviews. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, James. And thank I would be remiss not to mention the um, that we we should recognize the uh, the hard work of the trainee, uh, Savannah Bifolco, who is a um, third year PhD student in in the CARDS lab, the first author of the paper and who did the primary literature search um, that Nazim and I helped her craft into this, uh, what we think is a pretty excellent review. You know, we like it and it, it talks about a lot of other uh, groups research, which is also definitely worth, uh, worth a long look uh, from the listeners. Uh, yeah, and the review will be made free. If it's not open access fully already, it'll be made open access for a period of time after the podcast drops. So uh, I encourage everybody to, uh, to download it and, and have a read. But uh, thank you once again for your time, guys. Thank you, Thank you very much.